Let's go ahead and go to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for each and every day you bless us with. And Lord, uh, thank you for the opportunity to come together corporately as a church family, a church body, to worship you and your son. Lord, we thank you for all the visitors that we have today. And uh, Lord, these are divine appointments. We believe that you are indeed a sovereign God and nobody is here by mistake or by accident. They are here because you have ordained them to be here and for that we give you thanks. And now Lord, we pray for our time in your word that it would be indeed profitable for what we will learn. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Jim mentioned earlier, on October 31st, 1517, and that is why we kind of are celebrating this Reformation time. A German monk, again named Martin Luther, posted that 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The writing was 95 statements by Luther criticizing the doctrine of indulgences of the Roman Catholic Church. An indulgence was a, a way for a person to kind of work off their time in purgatory or to help someone who had already died work off their sins from this life by purchasing through the church some of the surplus merits of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints that were kept in some kind of spiritual treasury, if you will. Johann Tetzel was the priest in Germany assigned to collect the indulgences primarily to help pay for the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. In fact, he even offered full pardons from purgatory if the right price was paid. His slogan was, As soon as the coin is a coffer rings, this soul from purgatory springs. Purgatory is, of course, an invented Catholic doctrine that teaches when someone dies, they don't necessarily go straight to heaven, but instead they go to this sort of in-between place that is neither heaven nor hell, but closer to hell because it is a form of punishment where they would have to make satisfaction for their past sins so that they would be sufficiently holy in order to enter into heaven. The problem with this doctrine is, number one, the Bible just doesn't teach this. It teaches that for believers to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that upon their physical death, they will be in paradise with Christ Jesus. And those who have not believed will immediately go to hell Secondly, the Bible says quite clearly that on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin in full. And his sacrifice was indeed a one-time, once-for-all sacrifice for those that would trust in Christ Jesus as their Savior. To say that somebody needs to suffer punishment in order to pay for their sins before they would be allowed into heaven is not only ludicrous, but it is blasphemous. Because it clearly goes against the teaching of Scripture, but also that Christ's death 
as a once-for-all sacrifice was in vain. It means Christ did not pay the full price for your sins, which completely diminishes and degrades the work of Christ on the cross. This is heresy against our Savior and Lord. Now going back to indulgences, if you had a relative or you knew someone who had died and you believed that they were in purgatory, you could help them out by buying indulgences from the church. The more indulgences you bought, the less time your loved one would spend in punishment and the quicker they would gain entrance into heaven. The same applied to yourself. You could also buy indulgences as credits to be saved in your own kind of spiritual bank account. In any case, Luther, who was a Catholic monk, he became increasingly aware and concerned over the corruption and abuse of indulgences as well as other aspects of the church's teaching and practices. The Roman Catholic Church had greatly stepped up the pressure for people to buy indulgences because Pope Leo X wanted to finish the building of St. Peter's. This is what led him to post, then Luther to post, that 95 theses or statements against the abuse of indulgences by the church and the pope. Now at first Luther's intention was really to see some to see some reforms in the Catholic Church, to, to start, like Jim said, by, by getting a dialogue going. There were things that bothered him, and he was wondering about their scriptural basis and if indeed these things should continue in the church. And so he wrote these statements, these propositions, wanting to see what other people might say. Would they see what he saw and say the same things? He, he wanted to initiate a dialogue about these things. He wasn't looking to take down the Catholic Church. He wasn't even looking to separate from the church at the time. At the time, he didn't have any idea as to what though was about to happen by him doing this. He did not know that this 95 theses on the, the church door there in Wittenberg would be the catalyst for what then would become the Protestant Reformation. And as Jim said, the, the word Protestant simply means to protest, reformation to reform, which means to change for the better. And so when we speak of the Protestant Reformation, what we mean is the 16th century religious movement marked ultimately by rejection or modification of much of Roman Catholic doctrine and practice and the establishment then of Protestant churches. Now, that's, that's kind of the literal definition. In terms of what was really going on in the hearts and souls of the Reformers, I like uh, what theologian Carl Truman gives as a definition. He says, quote, The Reformation represents a move to place God as he has revealed himself in Christ at the center of the church's life and thought. End quote. Luther wasn't the only one to participate in the Protestant Reformation. In fact, again, as was mentioned earlier, it spread throughout Europe, places like France and the Netherlands and Scotland. And, and you might be familiar with some of the other reformers uh, by the names of John Wycliffe and 
William Tyndale, both of England. You had John Huss of Czechoslovakia, John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli of Switzerland. And while each of the reformers held to some different doctrinal beliefs, all were protesting the false teachings that was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and seeking to place Christ and his word center stage. In the aftermath of the Reformation firestorm, five doctrinal convictions, these five solas that we've been introduced to that that we read as scripture pieces, they remained like purified gold and are held fast today by those churches born out of the Protestant Reformation. And this is important for us to understand. This is important church history to know, especially in the light of the fact that men, women, and children have died for these truths. They have died, in fact, horrible deaths for these biblical convictions. And again, the solas, and that's what we're going to be considering this morning in our time in God's Word, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so what we're going to do here this morning is go through these five solas, and as we do, I want you to, I want you to think... And consider if things are so different today from the cry of even our 16th century brothers and sisters and assess whether these five biblical truths are alive and well here at Calvary Bible Church. If they're not, we got some problems, right? We need to pay attention to that. But let's jump right into the first one. Sola Scriptura, again, the Scriptures alone. Now sola scriptura was a an important cry for the reformation as the Roman Catholic Church did not believe in the scriptures alone because they either added to it or subtract from it. And that's the the two primary ways that people or groups um, deviate from scripture. Again, adding to it or subtracting from it. In this case, the Roman Catholic Church was adding to it by way of their doctrine of what we've already mentioned, purgatory and the practice of indulgences. Now, prior to the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church wanted to make sure it maintained control over the people. So they opted for one Bible translation. Guess in what language? Latin. It wasn't exactly the language of the people. Not many people knew Latin, and that was intentional. It was the language of the Catholic Church. The church did not desire to have the scriptures readily available or read by the masses for fear they might start to see the things that the reformers finally saw and realize the egregious errors of the church. Now, John Wycliffe, I mentioned him earlier, he was sort of a a precursory person to the Reformation because he actually lived and ministered in 14th century England. But he believed the scriptures should be in the language of the people, and so he became a driving force uh, behind the first complete translation of the Bible in English. He once said this, to inquire whether the Pope's orders are in conformity with the Bible is the reason why every Catholic ought to know 
the sacred scriptures. And of course, Wycliffe infuriated to no end those in authority in the Roman Catholic Church. And it's interesting because if you go to a Catholic church today, you should look around and just kind of take note of how many people carry Bibles into the church. Very few. It's just not something that has ever been emphasized in the church. But once people started reading the scriptures for themselves, then it became very apparent that the Roman Catholic Church did not see the scriptures as the final authority. In fact, the the church claims five other sources of divine authority. Number one, the Roman Catholic Church believes its own official interpretation of the Bible, that that is the only true scriptures to be divinely ordained. Secondly, they have additional books written between the Old Testament and the New that they call deuterocanonical. We refer to them as the Apocrypha, which just means secret or hidden books. These books were considered genuine scripture by the church starting in 1546. Thirdly, the Roman Catholic Church believes that uh, they believe in church tradition as being authoritative. The way uh, in which things have been understood throughout the history of Christianity, starting with the apostles and being handed down to today to be divine authority even classifying the church as the word of God. And fourthly, there's the, what they call the magisterium of the church, which is the teaching authority of the church itself as an institution created by Jesus Christ and protected by the Holy Spirit, which then leads to our last one, number five, the infallibility of the pope. In Vatican I, this would be 1869 to 1870, Listen to this statement from a Roman Catholic writing called Pastor Eternus regarding the infallibility of the Pope. So this is from their own writings. Quote, it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor or teacher of all Christians by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church by the divine assistance promised him in blessed Peter is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer referring there to Christ willed that his church should be endowed for defining doctrine regarding faith or morals. He has that divine infallibility, according to their doctrine. In other words, the Pope is equal in authority and should even sometimes could be elevated above the Holy Scriptures. It should also be noted that Bishops, when speaking or teaching in conjunction with the Pope and Orthodox Catholic tradition, are also considered to be infallible. Well, we need to get our Bibles open. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. The Gospel according to Mark. 
Jesus had something to say about all of this. You say, well, wait a minute. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't around at that point. Jesus had something to say to some people that held some similar beliefs, such as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Skip down to verse 13. Thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. He is faulting them for holding to the tradition of men and also their their man-made traditions that they have handed down he could be saying this about the catholic church now why did the reformers and consequently us today believe in the authority of the scriptures as scripture alone let me just give you five reasons one they understood the bible to be inspired by god We see this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, Peter says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So they understood this to be God's inspired divine word, the very word of God. They also understood the Bible as being infallible. That is, it is unfailing. It cannot fail. It will not fail in any matter of life or godliness we see this in second peter chapter 1 and verse 3 where peter says again seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness where do we get that divine understanding from right here in the pages of scripture through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence that's where we get a true knowledge of christ again from his scripture and of course we read earlier in psalm 19 um, in our reading or where we find out that scripture is perfect scripture is sure it is right it is pure it is clean it is true thirdly they also understood that the bible is inerrant that is it is without error in its original autographs its original manuscripts Again, like inspiration and infallibility, this specifically applies to, again, those original writings. In Psalm 119, verse 160, we read that earlier, the sum of your word is truth. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says it well, the sum of your word is truth. Again, uh, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is 
tested. And remember that God is a God who cannot lie. And we see that uh, several places in Scripture, such as Titus 1 and verse 2. Therefore, everything about God, including His Word, is truth. Fourthly, we see in the Scripture that Scripture testifies to Scripture. We have 40 biblical writers writing in three different languages from three continents over a period of 1,600 years with incredible continuity and without contradiction. They came from many different backgrounds. Some were kings and prophets and soldiers and herdsmen and fishermen. There were no pickleball players, at least not, not in, in the Scripture. A doctor, etc. Some were well-educated, some were not. But all understood and believed that they were writing down the very words of God. And these men did so without apology, without self-consciousness, without any disclaimers. They were absolutely convinced that what they were writing was indeed true and the word of God. And this is attested to the fact by, that no biblical writer has ever said, oh, now, I, I know this sounds really far-fetched, maybe even crazy, but an axe head floated up to the surface. They didn't say that. Not at all. In fact, biblical scholar Henry Morris estimates that there are some 2,600 claims in the Old Testament alone from biblical authors that they were indeed writing the very words of God. There are some 320 direct quotes from the Old Testament made in the New Testament. And some 1,000 references to the Old Testament from the New Testament writers. So it's clear that the New Testament writers also believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God. They even affirm other New Testament books as being God-inspired Scripture. In addition, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was indeed God's word, as he says in John 10.35, where he refers back to the Old Testament as the word of God, which cannot be broken. As well as Luke 24 and verse 44, when he says, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, referring back to Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then lastly, the reformers also understood because they were reading their Bibles. They saw the fulfilled prophecies that testified to the Bible as truth. Everything from God's promises to Abraham, including a, a son in he and Sarah's old age, to Israel's captivity in Babylon, and it got very specific with the length of time, 70 years, to Israel's temple being destroyed, the dispersion of the view, uh, Jews, to the many prophecies surrounding the Messiah, such as his birthplace, being born of a virgin, being from the line of David and from the kingdom of Judah, as well as his death, burial, and resurrection. More than a quarter of the Bible is concerned with prophecy and the prediction of future events. 
Quote, according to Old Testament professor J. Barton Payne, who produced the Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, 8,352 of the Bible's 31,124 verses are predictive. When duplicates are removed, Dr. Payne counted 1,817 predictions in the Bible, far more than any other religious text. Fulfilled prophecies hugely authenticate Scripture as God's authoritative truth. Now, friends, with, without the Reformation, where sola scriptura is concerned, people have been declared heretics. Or throughout the Reformation, they've been declared heretics and murdered in, in brutal fashion, not the least of which was to be burnt alive at the stake, again because they claimed Scripture alone. Secondly, we have sola fide, which means by faith alone. Now this was a big deal for Martin Luther. Just kind of go back in time with me. Shortly after a young Martin Luther became a Catholic monk, this after making a deal with God for sparing his life when a lightning bolt came precariously close to him, Young brother Martin fully dedicated himself to the monastic life, the effort to do good works to please God, and to serve others through prayer for their souls. And yet peace with God escaped him. He devoted himself to fasts, flagellations, which is when somebody would whip themselves for penance of their sins. Luther was even known to go out and lie naked in the snow. Long hours in prayer and pilgrimages and constant confession. However, it seemed the more that he tried to do for God, the more aware he became of his own sinfulness, and the more frustrated he became at not feeling like he was truly forgiven or even saved. And yet this is what he was taught through his religious schooling and belief in the sacraments of the church to impart grace and salvation. The sacraments being those things like baptism or confession, penance, communion. We'll talk more about those in a minute. It's, it's like a form of law. And this put Luther on a quest to answer just that question. How is it that one is justified before a righteous God, because Luther, he sure didn't feel like it. His condition as a sinner, his corrupted nature, his alienation from God, left him despairing. What can I do to win a gracious God, he said. Oh, my sin, my sin, what shall I do with my sin? Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You see, Luther saw God as an angry God that had to be appeased by good works. And even though Luther was considered a, a stellar monk by all accounts, he, he still felt the guilt of sin with no real assurance of salvation. Would he go to heaven or wouldn't he? The one scripture that kept him up at night is this Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Actually, I'm going to take us back to verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is the one that tripped Luther up. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For in it, that's referring to the gospel, the righteous, which can also be translated as justice, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it was this justice of God that filled Luther's soul with despair. And even at times hatred towards God as he saw no way out of this condemnation of God's justice. And it wasn't until he, he truly understood the next part, <coughs> excuse me, of verse 17, that the pieces started to kind of fall in together for Luther as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Meaning through faith, God's righteousness, his justice, could actually become the sinner's righteousness. Luther's righteousness. This was huge for Luther. Just turn probably a page or so over to Romans chapter 3. And look at verse 28. Romans 3 verse 28. This then opened up Luther's eyes to other of Paul's writings it it started to click it started to make sense the light bulb was going off on this justification by faith alone in romans 3 and verse 28 it says for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law in other words you can't keep the law right to be justified or to be saved Look down uh, chapter, skip over to chapter 4 and verse 3. Chapter 4 and verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham exhibited faith and it was put into his account as righteousness, right? Total forgiveness. And then in verse 5. Of chapter 4, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. By faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. This was music to Luther's ears and, and just goodness to his soul. The problem and why Luther was struggling there is that the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches two aspects of justification. The first is by God's grace. We would say, yeah, that's good, right? By God's grace. Whereas, quote, a man is moved by God to turn from sin. And secondly, occurs as man progresses in good works and merits for himself. The grace is needed to attain eternal life. That's an end quote from 
um, Ankerberg and Weldon's book on Roman Catholicism. The 1994 Catholic Catechism says this, so this is again their own writings, quote, no one can merit the initial grace which is at the origin of conversion. In other words, first justification, right? But once moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to obtain eternal life. That's their second aspect of justification. In other words, let's hear it from one of the pontiffs themselves, John Paul II, In a 1983 Los Angeles Times article, quote, Man is justified by works and not by faith alone. End quote. Doesn't get much clearer than that, right? Catholic teaching is that you are saved by believing in the whole of Roman Catholic doctrine, which includes being justified as a supernatural act of God, but then also by you keeping the sacraments of the church. Those things like baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, etc., as well as through your good works over the span of your life. And it would be this earned righteousness that would grant your entrance then into heaven. This is why the Catholic Church is so into its charity work. And they have uh, like Catholic charities, for instance, because they believe by doing all these things, they are actually helping out in their salvation, helping to earn their place in heaven. In other words, Luther had come to the correct understanding that when a sinner repents and believes By faith, they are saved, justified, and made righteous by the grace of God as a gift all in one moment. Not by their works done to gain a righteous standing with God or works to outweigh the bad kind of thing. Our good works done for the Lord are something we now desire to do because of God's great love for us in saving us. It's the fruit then of our salvation. Well, this will take us to sola gratia. Uh, we won't spend as much time here by grace alone. We've, we've talked a lot recently about grace alone and it goes hand in hand with faith alone as Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through what faith right and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of work so that no one may boast and again because we've already talked a a lot about this recently um, we understand that there is nothing we can do To save ourselves. There is nothing in our wheelhouse, in our works, in our person, in our heart or minds that we could do to earn our way to heaven. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't merit heaven in any way. And this teaching had been buried and smothered in the darkness of man-made religion for centuries. Salvation, Luther discovered from his study of the scriptures, was not obtained By keeping the sacraments or personal piety or penance. By buying or earning indulgences or by doing any religious deeds. But was the free gift of God's grace to unworthy sinners. Grace is a have to for your salvation. Because as sinners again, 
We can't save ourselves. Back in that Ephesians 2 passage, Paul makes crystal clear that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. With that, turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you had your Romans place, we'll just cruise over there a little bit to the uh, right. Hit Colossians chapter 2, right after Philippians, verses 13 and 14. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. And you've had this question before from the pulpit here. Can a dead person make themselves alive? No. Can they think or make decisions for themselves? No. I know all my young people are thinking, well, they're zombies. They're zombies. We've talked... uh, Oh, excuse me. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, made you alive together with Him, Christ, having forgiven all our transgressions. That's your sins. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. God made you alive, and he did it by his grace. Now, Luther was God's instrument to excavate the truth that had been buried for centuries of a corrupt church. He labored relentlessly to make sure that people knew that salvation was by grace and not grace in that Roman Catholic sense of the word, which was favor given to sinners so that they could try to earn their salvation, but grace in a strictly biblical sense, the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God that he gives to sinners, which saves them from apart from any works at all. Our works, as Luther learned and we said a minute ago, were to be offered to God in love and gratitude for his having saved us. And and let me just say this, friends, any, any other religious system that holds to works righteousness, that you can earn your way to heaven by your good works, is in error, which pretty much amounts to everything outside of biblical Christianity. And this kind of error is huge because it means that people are not believing in the true gospel. They're they're holding to a gospel where they participate in their salvation. And this this is wrong. It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. There is no gospel that we find in the scriptures to this effect. In fact, Works righteousness, we would say, is actually a false gospel. Now, let me just add a little quick something here. Does this mean, all of this, that I think all Catholics are not true believers? No. I believe there are plenty of Catholics that are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would say this. If they are, they most likely do not hold to strict Catholic doctrine. It becomes kind of a mishmash of what they think and what they've 
maybe been taught some aspects and what they have seen in Scripture for themselves. So I do believe that there are Catholics who are saved. But I think if you are a Catholic who just holds strict and fast to the Catholic doctrine, that would be extremely difficult. Fourthly, in our solas, we have solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Now, this one might sound kind of like a funny one to you because, well, wait a minute, Catholics believe in Jesus, right? I mean, they, they uh, you know, talk about him and they pray to him and they have him on their, their crosses as a crucifix, right? So, gosh, what's the, what's the problem there? The problem is this. In the Roman Catholic Church, Christ is simply one authority of several in the church. And we've already mentioned some of these. We mentioned the extra-biblical writings and the Pope and the cardinals, bishops, priests. Did you know that Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also an authority and one that they pray to? Then there's the authority of the church and the church's traditions, which include then the seven sacraments, which are believed to impart special graces, even saving grace from God. And let me just mention them to you again with a little brief uh, deal about each one. There's number one is baptism. For Catholics, baptism is the sacrament of salvation and the door to all other sacraments as they believe God's saving grace, his very presence, enters into the human soul at baptism. Yes, that could be infant baptism. There is, secondly, the Eucharist. It's when Catholics believe, they, they, they believe that once they you know, have come to faith, they receive the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ through the, the doctrine of what's called, here's your $5 theological word, transubstantiation. Which is when during the Mass, bread and wine are believed to become the literal body and blood of Jesus through the power of God by the priest's prayer when he repeats Jesus' words, this is my body and this is the chalice of my blood. Thirdly, you have confirmation, which provides a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which helps the confirmed Catholic witness to Christ and lead a mature Christian life. Fourthly, reconciliation, which is also called confession or penance. A Catholic, this is where a Catholic confesses his or her sins to a priest and in the spirit of true repentance and then receives forgiveness. In other words, the priest acts as a, a, a visible representative of Christ who forgives sins through Christ. Fifthly, you have the anointing of the sick, or what is also called last rites, which offers the comfort of God's grace to those who are ill. The sacrament provides spiritual and sometimes physical healing according to God's will, but also allows the sick person to join his or her sufferings to Christ in preparation of their death. Sixthly, there's the sacrament of marriage or matrimony, joining a man and a woman together in a lifelong covenant of self-giving love. The two spouses give their consent to join together in marriage as the church defines it. God gives special grace to the couple that they may live out their vow. And lastly, number seven, holy orders. Men are ordained as bishops, priests, and deacons. They take a vow of celibacy 
and do not marry. It's believed these men are given the grace to live out their lives in service to the church and to God's people. And we have, I think, seen how well that has gone. Not to say that there aren't other religious denominations and Protestant ones that have dealt with that kind of problem. There have been. Now, getting back to Christ alone, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I know we're just going a little bit over here. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. At this time, in Acts 4, verse 5, the church was going through the labor pains of being born. The Holy Spirit was energizing the apostles, giving them the ability to do miracles, and they were preaching the gospel. Peter, who had denied Christ three times at Jesus' crucifixion, was now a transformed man, empowered greatly by the Holy Spirit, and just an awesome preacher. He and the apostles were filling Jerusalem with their teaching. The Jews didn't like this, and so they had... Peter and John jailed. Then Luke tells us this in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? meaning you've done these miracles. This referring to the healing of the lame beggar, followed by some serious gospel preaching that converted some 5,000 people. In verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, referring to Christ, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. One name, one person by which we must be saved. As we read also in John 14 and verse 6, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father but through me. Many believe this doctrine of Christ as Savior to be too narrow, too dogmatic, too inflexible, and theologically rigid. In fact, the unbelieving masses have always had a problem with these Truths, I probably don't have to tell you that. There is just something about Christ alone that causes people who don't want to submit to Jesus to reject him. The Catholic Church will not say in Christ alone, but instead would say 
in Christ, the Virgin Mary, the Pope, the church, additional writings and tradition. Well, lastly, on our list here of our five, we have Soli Deo Gloria. Again, to God alone be the glory. To the glory of God alone. In other words, Mary is not to be glorified. The Pope is not to be glorified, nor bishops or priests or the church or men. And with that, turn lastly to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Back in the back parts of your Bibles. Beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 4 verse 9 says this. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All things that we do as believers should Seek to glorify God and to glorify God and His Son alone. And what the Reformers saw in regard to the Roman Catholic Church was glory going to men. It was about men gaining power and men having control and men feeding their lusts, men and their doctrines, men and their religion. It was as if God existed to serve and exalt the creation Rather than the opposite. The creation seeking to exalt and serve the creator. And what the reformers saw in the scriptures is that we were created for God's glory. That men are to do all things that God might be glorified. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 the apostle Paul says that we are to glorify God in our body. And later in chapter 10 and verse 31, Paul says, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the, say it with me, glory of God. In Colossians 3 and verse 17, again, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? So he gets the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. So friends, these are, these are these battle cries of the Reformation. Right? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, Sola Fide, saved by faith alone, the very faith which God gives you, Sola Gratia, saved by grace alone, the very grace which He supplies, Sola Christus, you are saved by His Son alone, the one that was sent from the Father to give His life for yours. And yes, Sola Scriptura, because that's where the gospel is. And Soli Deo glory, because all of this, he may get the glory alone, the glory that he, he so righteously deserves, glory that should never go to men, but God and God alone. And so again, I, I go back to that original question I asked you to be thinking about. In light of today and, and the society around us, how are we doing 
as a church? Are we holding fast to these doctrines? How can we tell? How are you doing as an individual? Are these doctrines you find yourself standing firm on when confronted by opposing beliefs out there in the world? Because there are many and serious opposing beliefs out there in the world, are there not? Are we standing firm as individuals when we're out there in our daily life? Are we standing firm on these truths as a church? Even when we go out to the Magnolia Park deal and what we would share with people. And of course, this all starts first and foremost by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, putting your faith and trust in Him and what He accomplished on the cross on your behalf. Not just that He died on the cross, but that He went into the ground and three days later, though, was resurrected from the dead, giving proof that your sins are forgiven and you too will have eternal life and the blessing of His Holy Spirit abiding in you if you would repent and believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for just again these tremendous truths in the form of these solas. We thank you too for the men and women that went before that paid some of them the ultimate price for these truths, for these convictions. And I pray that they would be our convictions as a church, as individuals, that Calvary Bible Church would remain strong. Lord, for years and years to come and and, and as long as you would tarry until Christ's return. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.